Chronicles Revisited Podcast, Episode 3, Quotations from Chairman Morrow, A Decade of Morrow Designs. Welcome to the Chronicles Revisited Podcast. I'm S.M. Oliva. I write the blog Computer Chronicles Revisited, which reviews the people and products featured on the PBS series that aired between 1983 and 2002. In this podcast, I focus on individual stories that I've previously featured on the blog. In this episode, I'll be looking at the history of Morrow Designs, the company founded by longtime Computer Chronicles contributor George Morrow and his wife in 1976. Morrow Designs was part of the first wave of microcomputer manufacturers that emerged prior to the release of the IBM PC in 1981. Like other companies of this early period, including Osborne, Kpro, and Vector Graphic, Morrow Designs sold pre-assembled computers bundled with Gary Kildall's CPM operating system and business software such as a word processor and a spreadsheet. During its 10-year lifespan, Morrow Designs evolved from a home business selling components to computer hobbyists into a PC clone manufacturer pushing the boundaries of what early portable computers could do. But the company had ongoing problems with cash flow, distribution, and customer support. And ultimately, George Morrow was an iconoclastic figure who wanted to do things his way in a market that was rapidly moving in a different direction. George Clayton Morrow was born in Detroit, Michigan on January 30, 1934. His family was in the restaurant business. Morrow's father owned a drive-in near San Francisco, and his uncle ran a luncheonette. Morrow himself was a self-described teenage delinquent, a D student kicked out of high school at 16. Young George was also an entrepreneur. His first business venture was stealing white wall tires from cars in the San Francisco Bay Area and then reselling them in Southern California. Unfortunately, Morrow's initiative landed him before a judge who gave him an Armin Tamzarian-style choice, go to jail or enlist in the Army. Morrow chose the latter and spent the next two years in various postings around Asia. After returning to the United States, Morrow followed in his family's footsteps and worked as a short-order cook. But thanks to the GI Bill, he eventually returned to school at the age of 27, working his way from community college to Stanford University. It was at Stanford that George met Mashiko Jean, whom he later married. Morrow entered Stanford in the 1960s as a mechanical engineering major but a meeting with his academic advisor quickly changed his focus. Morrow had taken a required physics course as part of his major, but he decided he wanted to learn more about the subject. Morrow's advisor warned him that he needed to finish school and start earning money. After all, Morrow was 30 years old at this point, an old man in undergraduate terms. The advisor put his foot down. If I see any more physics courses on your card, I won't sign it. Morrow's response was equally emphatic. The hell with you. He promptly changed his major to physics, and after completing that physics degree, he went on to earn a master's in mathematics from the University of Oklahoma before returning to California and entering a Ph.D. program in mathematics at Berkeley. But Morrow never completed his doctorate. In 1968, he took a computer class at Berkeley and was quickly hooked. He spent the next seven years working as a programmer for Berkeley's business school, building computer analysis models and learning about hardware design. In 1975, Morrow left the university and set up a consulting business. That didn't last long, he later said, because he didn't like solving other people's problems. It was around this time, however, that Morrow first started attending meetings of the Homebrew Computer Club, the famous group that also helped launch the Apple partnership of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. 
The Homebrew Club started in large part as a response to the 1974 release of the Altair 8800, an early microcomputer based on the Intel 8080 microprocessor. Morrow and two fellow club members, Chuck Grant and Mark Greenberg, decided to form a company to make expansion boards for the Altair. But Morrow quickly pulled out of the venture. According to a longtime friend, Stan Velt, Morrow, quote, had his own ideas of what he wanted to do, unquote, and decided to go his own way. Grant and Greenberg later ended up forming their own computer company, North Star Computers, which was in business from 1976 to 1984. Morrow's first idea was to build an expansion board so that you could program the Altair using a keypad, as opposed to the toggle switches that came with the machine. This went nowhere. Morrow's board used octal, or base 8 notation, while most of the 8080 programming community used hexadecimal, or base 16 notation. And in any event, Stanvelt noted, most Altair enthusiasts actually like the switches. Undeterred, Morrow started designing a 16-bit computer kit for Bill Godbout, the owner of a popular electronics store in the San Francisco area. That project didn't pan out either, but Morrow ended up designing memory boards for Godbout for a short time before again striking out on his own. This was the beginning of Morrow Designs, although it didn't start out with that name. In April 1976, Morrow took out an advertisement in Byte magazine offering 8080 computer kits, memory boards, and cassette interfaces under the name Morrow's Micro Stuff. This was a mail-order business ran out of George and Mashiko Morrow's home. The Morrows invested $6,000 in personal savings to launch their new venture. But George Morrow said the bite ad proved successful, and by the end of 1976, they had sold $600,000 in product. This enabled the fledgling company to move out of the Morrows' Berkeley home and into another house in nearby Richmond, California. In 1977, Morrow renamed his business Thinker Toys. He told a journalist that he picked the name based, quote, on the idea that a computer system should be as easy to configure for different applications as a set of Tinker Toys, unquote, a reference to a popular children's construction set. Morrow made it clear, however, that his company had no affiliation with the original Tinker Toys. Unfortunately, that didn't satisfy CBS the media conglomerate that owned Tinker Toys at the time through a subsidiary. When Morrow filed his trademark for Thinker Toys with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, CBS objected. The PTO actually sided with Morrow and upheld his trademark. CBS appealed. And in June 1983, a three-judge panel of the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit ruled in favor of CBS and canceled Morrow's trademark. Judge Jack Miller wrote the Federal Circuit's opinion. A former senator from Iowa, Miller rejected Morrow's contention that since his products targeted technically sophisticated adults, there was no risk that anyone would confuse his circuit boards with children's toys. Miller speculated that Morrow might expand his electronic offerings into computer games or video games, which would then put him in direct competition with CBS. Miller's fears were likely unfounded. George Morrow never expressed any interest in games. In fact, he once said of the arcade industry, quote, if I had a business that relied on kids sticking quarters in a machine, I couldn't sleep at night, unquote. Nevertheless, Miller's decision put an end to the Thinker Toys brand. So when the Morrows formally incorporated their business in 1979, it was under the name Morrow Designs. Morrow did, however, continue to use the Thinker Toys name in advertisements sporadically until about 1981. Even with the name change, the early business of Morrow Designs remained selling parts and expansion cards, targeting the S100 bus, an open standards clone of the system bus used on the original Altair. Before the IBM personal computer debuted in 1981, 
The S100 bus was the de facto standard used by most CPM-based microcomputers. Morrow's main goal was improving the disk controllers on these early machines. He saw floppy disks as the major limitation in making micros useful for the small business market. Once hard disks came down in price, he reasoned, the challenge would then be producing software to take advantage of the increased storage capacity. In 1981, just before IBM entered the market, Morrow decided to take the leap himself and launched Morrow Design's first fully assembled microcomputer, the Morrow Decision 1. Like many machines of the period, the decision was based on the S100 bus and used an 8-bit Zilog Z80 microprocessor. Morrow also bundled the decision with pre-installed software, including CPM, the popular word processor WordStar, a spreadsheet program, a spelling checker, a database manager, and the basic programming language. Morrow saw bundling as the key to success. He later wrote that he copied the idea from Adam Osborne, whose Osborne 1 computer came out in early 1981 and offered a similar package of bundled software. Morrow later wrote, quote, I watched what he did and figured that if a little software was good, a lot would be even better, unquote. As Morrow saw it, with a bundled machine, you could throw away the hardware and keep the software, and it was still a good buy. Although sold primarily as a CPM machine, the Decision 1 was also quite possibly the first consumer-level microcomputer designed to support Unix. This was well before standard open-source distributions of Unix such as FreeBSD. Morrow Designs actually licensed the original Unix source code from Bell Labs and created its own in-house version known as Micronix which was compatible with what was then version 6 Unix. According to Morrow, you could actually run CPM programs on top of Micronix, which effectively created a multi-user CPM system. Of course, this wasn't cheap. If you purchased the Micronix configuration, it would set you back around $7,300. It is unlikely there were many customers at that price point. In fact, a 1982 price list for Morrow Designs omitted any mention of Micronix as an option. And just to keep things in context, the basic configuration of the machine with CPM cost around $2,400. A full setup with a 5.25-inch floppy disk drive and a 16-megabyte hard drive cost $5,400. An optional video display terminal, in all its green phosphor glory, would set you back another $600. The decision's biggest drawback turned out to be its S100 bus. While that had been the microcomputer standard for several years, the launch of the IBM PC in August 1981 set a new standard. George Morrow adapted, however, and launched a new computer line called the Morrow Micro Decision in 1982. The Micro Decision, or MD, carried some concepts forward from the original Decision 1, but abandoned the S100 bus in favor of the much simpler single-board design introduced by the IBM PC. There were three basic configurations of the Micro Decision, known as the MD1, MD2, and MD3, respectively. The MD1 was the base model and came with a single-side, five and a quarter inch floppy disk drive. The MD2 added a second floppy drive. The MD3 also came with two drives, but they could each read both sides of a disk. The micro decision line also continued the practice of software bundling. This actually made the MD machines quite a bargain for the time. An MD1 with a video terminal and all of the office software you would need to get up and running cost around $2,000. That was far less than what you would pay for a similarly configured IBM PC or even an Apple II. Unfortunately for Morrow, his machines never sold quite as well as either of his larger competitors. We don't have exact sales figures for Morrow Designs, but at the time of the company's closing in 1986, the editor of the Morrow Owner's Review newsletter estimated that a total of 40,000 MicroDecision machines were sold over the product's lifetime. For comparison, 
IBM sold about 1.3 million PCs just in 1983. Still, the micro decision developed a small, loyal customer base. Sometime in late 1981 or early 1982, Morrow Designs was doing well enough to relocate from its original headquarters in Richmond to a manufacturing facility in San Leandro, a city in California's Alameda County. And in late 1983, Morrow decided to produce a portable version of the micro decision. George Morrow told a reporter from InfoWorld that he had, quote, never been an enthusiast of portable computers, unquote, but he was driven to create one after seeing the K-Pro 2, a portable machine with a built-in display and bundled software that managed to undercut Morrow on price. The K-Pro's design was widely criticized. Morrow himself said, quote, if George Lucas designed a lunch pail for Darth Vader, it would look like a K-Pro, unquote. Morrow Designs debuted its portable machine, dubbed the Morrow Pivot, at the May 1984 Comdex show in Atlanta, Georgia. The Pivot shipped later that year, and George Morrow made his first Computer Chronicles appearance at the end of 1984 to promote the new computer. And George, you have your Pivot with That's you. Right. Why don't you show us uh, what that is and how it differs from the other things right. we've seen. Well, it differs in a couple of ways. Uh, it uses an LCD, just like a lot of the other machines. It does have one thing that uh, the rest of the machines don't have, and that's a five and a quarter inch disc. Uh, either you don't have a disc like the HP people and they expect to carry your stuff around in ROM, or they have three and a half inch discs. Now, if you go out and buy Lotus for $500, you'll find that if you don't have a pair of scissors with you, you're going to have to spend another $300 on your three and a half inch version of Lotus. The pivot wasn't just a pivot into portable computers. It was also a move away from CPM. The pivot was the first Morrow Designs machine to ship with MS-DOS. It also signaled an expansion of the, pro of the company's product lines. By the end of 1984, Morrow was selling not just the Pivot, but a new version of the Micro Decision, the MD3-P, which came with a built-in display, and the MD11, which was named after the included 11-megabyte hard drive. Morrow even announced another attempt at making a Unix machine, which he dubbed the Tricep. Although a Morrow Designs price sheet listed the tricep at $8,495, it's not clear that any units ever actually shipped. George Morrow's personal profile also grew towards the end of 1984. In addition to his first Chronicles appearance, Morrow Designs distributed a short book called Quotations from Chairman Morrow at the November 1984 Comdex show in Las Vegas. This helped cement Morrow's reputation as an iconoclast within the industry, although to be honest, some of his comments also had a distinctive old man yells at cloud vibe. For example, he took a lot of shot at software developers, such as, quote, anyone who trusts a programmer deserves what happens to him, unquote, and, quote, programmers are like rock stars, but with rock stars, at least you get to hear the song before you buy the record. A programmer spends six months tuning his instrument, and whether it works or not, you're paying the whole time, unquote. But Morrow's comments also demonstrated a savvy understanding of how the tech industry worked at the time, and frankly continues to work today. His theory of finance went as follows, quote, When you're a little guy operating out of a garage, you have to pay all your own bills. But when you get more successful, you get a line of credit, and the bank starts paying your bills. Then you get a little more successful, and the bank won't pay anymore, so you pay your bills slowly, 30, 60, 120 days late, and now your vendors are paying your bills. Now you're even more successful, you get venture capitalists, and they're paying your bills. And it used to be when you reached the highest level of success, you could go public and have the public paying your bills. But nowadays, when you finally reach the pinnacle of financial success like Chrysler, you're so successful you can't be allowed to fail, and the government starts paying your bills." Unquote. 
Suffice to say, Morrow was skeptical of taking venture capital money, but this meant Morrow Designs constantly struggled to pay its bills and build out its infrastructure. You may have got a lot of software with your MD3 or Pivot, but you weren't getting much in terms of customer support. Like a lot of early small computer manufacturers, Morrow Designs relied heavily on its distributors, themselves mostly small computer stores, to provide customer support. And Morrow himself long preached that the best form of customer support was to join a local computer users group, effectively getting the customers to support themselves. Morrow Designs did provide some funding for these groups. In April 1984, the Bay Area Micro Decision Users Association, BAMDUA, established a national newsletter, the previously mentioned Morrow Owners Review. Morrow Designs provided the initial funding to print and mail the review, which remained editorially independent of the company. And to be clear, the review was no corporate mouthpiece. The second issue, published in June 1984, provided a blow-by-blow -blow account of a Bermuda forum where Morrow Designs president Bob Dilworth and the company's chief engineer, Howard Fulmer, spent an hour listening to customer complaints. One such complaint was over the documentation of the bundled software, or more precisely, the lack of quality documentation. Dilworth and Fulmer explained that most of the software came from the original publisher, and it would cost too much money for Morrow to rewrite it. This led to another complaint over the relative lack of customer support from the small retailers that sold Morrow machines. Dilworth and Fulmer explained they couldn't get their machines into larger distributors with better customer support, such as Computerland, because those stores wouldn't carry computers with bundled software. And that was true. Computer stores made a good deal of money selling software separately. Morrow's bundling may have made sense from a customer value standpoint, but it also made their machines a money loser to higher volume computer stores. And while it was easy for Morrow Designs to blame retailer greed for their problems, the truth was the company simply lacked the capital to compete in a market experiencing rapid growth in the wake of the IBM PC. In September 1983, George Morrow announced plans to conduct a public offering of 1.2 million shares of stock for between $15 and $18 apiece. This money would have been used to pay down debt and provide working capital. But less than a month later, Morrow called off the IPO. He told a Wall Street Journal reporter that the market was spooked by reports of a new low-cost IBM computer in the works. This would turn out to be the PC Junior, although at the time the rumored machine was referred to as the Peanut. While the Junior ultimately failed in the market, speculation about the machine, likely combined with an overall downturn in tech stocks in 1983, was enough to damage Morrow Design's IPO prospects. Of course, George would later try and spin the aborted IPO as a blessing. When asked about it in October 1984, he told a reporter that if they had raised the money, they would have spent it all by now and the stock would likely be down to $1.50 per share. Nevertheless, Morrow still needed money to bring the pivot to market, so he did accept $3.5 million in venture capital funding towards the end of 1983. Morrow gave up roughly a quarter of his company's stock to secure this money. But even with the additional funding, Morrow Designs continued to live a hand-to-mouth existence until its final demise in 1986. The company's final chapter came with the Morrow Pivot 2, its last major hardware release. The Pivot 2 was the successor to the original Pivot, with the main new feature being a backlit LCD. By this point, Morrow Designs was so desperate for cash that it licensed the Pivot 2 design to two other companies, Osborne and Zenith Data Systems. It was the Zenith license that proved to be the fatal move. Zenith had actually paid Morrow Designs an upfront licensing fee that did not include any per-unit royalties. Now, there are some discrepancies in the historical accounts I've reviewed. Some reports said that George Morrow chose between an upfront and per-unit license. 
But Wendy Woods, the longtime Computer Chronicles contributor who also ran her own online news service, reported that Zenith tried to pull its license in September 1985 after deciding the terms were, quote, too lenient, unquote. This sudden move forced Morrow Designs to shut down production on the Pivot 2 and temporarily lay off half of its remaining staff. To add insult to injury, during this time, Morrow Designs president Bob Dilworth left the company to become the new general manager of, of Zenith Data Systems. Shortly thereafter, Woods reported that Morrow and Zenith worked out their licensing dispute, but this only proved to be a temporary respite for Morrow Designs. In early 1986, the Internal Revenue Service solicited bids for a contract to provide up to 18,000 portable computers for the agency's tax auditors. IBM was considered an early frontrunner in the press, but it turned out IBM's new portable machine wasn't actually ready. That opened the door to rival bids from both Zenith Data Systems and Sperry Corporation. Both Zenith and Sperry proposed to use the Morrow Pivot 2 design, but Sperry, which had no history developing portables, planned to subcontract the actual manufacturing to Morrow Designs. Zenith, in contrast, planned to make its machines in-house. And since it didn't have to pay any per-unit licensing fees on the design, Morrow would receive nothing if Zenith won the contract. Which it did. Zenith ended up producing its own version of the Pivot 2 for the IRS, known as the Z171. George Morrow got credit for the great design, but little else. Publicly, he told the press that he was justly proud of his winning design, and his company intended to soldier on. Morrow Designs held a press conference on March 4, 1986, to announce its newest product, the Pivot XT, a pivot with a 10-megabyte hard drive, which was scheduled for release in June 1986. Sadly, the XT never shipped. Three days after the press conference, Morrow Designs collapsed. The company owed more than $5 million to its creditors and only had $500,000 in assets. On the morning of March the 7th, 1986, Morrow and his new president, Barry Berghorn, met with their principal lender, Union Bank of Los Angeles. The bank informed them that it was pulling the plug. Morrow Designs filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy that day. Berghorn resigned as president, telling Wendy Woods, quote, I don't care to struggle any longer, unquote. George Morrow then fired most of his remaining 35 employees. While Chapter 11 filing left the door open to a possible reorganization of the company, Union Bank decided that as the main creditor, it was best to close up shop and liquidate the remaining assets of Morrow Designs. The bank held a bankruptcy auction on June 24, 1986, at the company's now-abandoned San Leandro headquarters. George Morrow wasted no time, however, in moving on to his next business venture. Even before the final gavel fell at the Morrow Designs bankruptcy auction, George announced that he'd started a new company called Intelligent Access. Morrow planned to return to his roots, focusing on designing next-generation disk drive controllers instead of building his own computers. While Morrow was eager this time to secure early venture capital, he didn't find many takers. Instead, he ended up selling Intelligent Access to Nestar Systems in early 1987. Basically, Nestar acquired Morrow's disk controller designs, and he agreed to a part-time position as the company's chief scientist. Morrow later said the job involved him working three days a week and coming up with three new products, after which he planned to move on to something else. Of course, Morrow continued to serve as a regular contributor to Computer Chronicles for much of the 1980s. He initially provided end-of-episode commentaries during the program's 1985-1986 season. Thereafter, he functioned as the main substitute co-host during Gary Kildall's frequent absences. After Intelligent Access, George Morrow never launched another business in the tech sector. 
1989, he consulted for South Korean computer manufacturer TriGem on a possible design for a new laptop. He also told Wendy Woods that he was working on a notepad computer which acts like a piece of paper, but he couldn't find a company capable of actually making it. In 1990, he joined a group that announced yet another disk controller product. And his last public appearance that I could find came at the 1991 Comdex show in Las Vegas, where he told reporters that he'd recently recovered from cancer surgery. In his latter years, Morrow focused on his major non-computer hobby, collecting and remastering old records. Morrow's collection reportedly contained a copy of every 78 vinyl record ever released in the United States. Stuart Chaffee even recorded a cold open for a 1987 Chronicles episode at Morrow's home, noting George's use of a complex database manager to keep track of all his records. Let's say you're George Morrow and you have a collection of over 70,000 78 RPM records and somebody says to you, what do you have by Hoagy Carmichael from the year 1930? Well, either you need another room this size full of 3x5 cards in about a week or a personal computer, a database manager, and you get the answer in seconds. Six, Stuart. Which one do you want? <laughs> According to longtime Morrow friend and fellow Computer Chronicles contributor Paul Schindler, George's collection grew so immense that it started to buckle the floors in his house, and he later moved everything to a nearby warehouse. Morrow himself revealed in the final issue of the Morrow Owner's Review that the database he used to track the collection had outgrown the capacity of his own micro-decision, so he had switched to using a more powerful PC. In 1995, Morrow purchased the Old Masters, a record label that he used to reissue the recordings he remastered from his collection. In June 2001, Morrow gave what was likely his final published interview to Billboard magazine about his record label. Billboard noted that Morrow managed to revive a number of long-lost albums dating as far back as the 1930s. George Morrow died on May the 7th, 2003, at the age of 69, due to complications from aplastic anemia. He was survived by his wife and three children. George's widow, Mishiko Jean Morrow, told the Los Angeles Times that her husband, quote, lived life very fully, going full speed all the time, unquote. And that's all for this episode of the Chronicles Revisited podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode, there are links in the show notes. You can also visit my website, Computer Chronicles Revisited, at smoliva.blog. That's S-M-O-L-I-V-A dot blog. This episode was adapted from a blog post I published in July 2022, and it contains more on the history of George Morrow and Morrow Designs. In the next episode, I'll look back at one of Paul Schindler's earliest software reviews on Computer Chronicles, which may also be one of the first cases of a program's author using his name as a marketing tool. Talk to you then. <laughs> <laughs>